This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. You guys know I sometimes wonk out with cars and auto reviews, and I've spoken to a number of people in that industry. Today, I have pretty much the Mac Daddy of YouTube car reviewers. That would be Doug DeMuro. His stats are kind of insane. He's got about 3.7 million subscribers and just billions of views. I'm not using that as hyperbole. Billions of views. He's pretty much driven every car under the sun. New cars, old cars, exotic cars, and has created a really fascinating business around filming himself doing car reviews. He's got a very charming sense of humor, especially in writing. It's quirky, kind of reminds me a little bit of Dave Barry. And he also is really, really insightful with automobiles. I don't know if it's by the end of each review he's convinced me or we just start in the same place, but I find him to be enormously insightful when it comes to the value of cars, what their strengths and weaknesses are. Hey, is this something you might want to pick up as a weekend driver, or is this a, a car you could take uh, the kids back and forth with? It's just really interesting. There's a whole universe of YouTube car folks, and some of them just deal with the craziest, most exotic stuff. Doug is very down to earth, and he gets as excited about a Ferrari as the next guy, but he also can take you through, you know, something like the Ford Bronco or Range Rover Velar and explain the advantages of them. If you're a car person or if you're actually shopping for a car, go to his YouTube site, Doug DeMuro, and just search for the car you're looking for. I'm pretty positive you're going to find something either identical to or similar to what you're looking for, and he could really share some insights as to that specific car. I could babble about this forever rather than do that. With no further ado, my conversation with Doug DeMuro. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Doug DeMauro. He is a car reviewer, but not just any car reviewer. His YouTube channel has 3.7 million subscribers. His videos have been seen over 1.1 billion times. Each one averages about a 2 million view count per video. He has won numerous awards from YouTube and others, including the Gold Creator Award. He is the author of two books, Plays with Cars and Bumper to Bumper. Doug DeMuro, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So let's get a little overview of of your career. You begin at Porsche as sort of a cubicle drone working spreadsheets, (laughs) but, but at least you got a really nice company car, didn't you? Yeah, so I worked at Porsche. I was 21. I just graduated from college, and I had a 911, a series of them, actually. I had four 911 company cars during the time I worked there, and then a Panamera. And I only crashed two of those five cars, so it really, (laughs) it all worked out pretty well, I think, for everybody. 33%. That's a great percentage. Um, Oh, wait, you had four cars, so 50%. Two out of of five. Two out of five. Four 911s and a Panamera, so... I crashed one of the 911s and one of the and the Panamera. Now the 911 I read about was a rainstorm. You come around a uh, a, a turn and there's a tree down on the street. How'd you <laughs> how'd you crash the Panamera? Oh, that one the the Panamera was was not my fault. The guy pulled out in front of me. He like ran a stop sign. 
I also considered the 9-11 not to be my fault, you know, with a tree in the road, but my bosses didn't see it that way. They, they, were, they were not in agreement with me. Was the tree falling just as you came around the corner or no, was the was tree already the there? Road, but it was a dark road and it was a, it was a sharp corner and you just you couldn't avoid it, in my opinion. Right. Unless you were driving more slowly, which is what the officer would have said to me. <laughs> I think I think that driving, was their point of view. Right. Too fast for, for road conditions. I, I We've all been right. there. So you begin writing not long after you were at Porsche. Uh, you wrote for The Truth About Cars, which is a great blog. Way early, uh, that blog was telling people that GM was going to go bankrupt years in advance. They were dead right. You, write, you wrote for uh, Jalopnik. What, what led to this side gig? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I was 21 and I was working at Porsche and then I was 22 and 23 and you know, I don't know. I was just at that age. It's it's hard to sit in a cubicle. You know, I I just was thinking to myself, am I really going to do this forever? And it was cool having those cars, but they weren't mine. You know, they were rental cars essentially from the company that you had for six months, and then you get another one. And I I just remember after the, you know the third or fourth one, you pick it up, and it's kind of lost its magic. And you think to yourself, is this really going to be my whole life? You know, am I going to be driving other people's cars? And that's kind of the highlight of my life is picking up a new rented. <laughs> And so I started to kind of think about what do I want to do, really? And I was actually writing already for uh, autotrader.com, writing like just boring, you know, generic car articles. You know, should you buy your car at the end of the lease or whatever? And I just decided, my wife and I were like, let's just take this jump. So one day I quit and started, yeah, I mean, started writing a tooth about cars about two weeks after I quit. And that began the, that was the seed that sprouted. Now, I recall reading something of yours about the Chicago Auto Show that was surprisingly funny in a very Dave Barry-like way. It had a sense of humor. It wasn't your straight, here's the latest and greatest from Hyundai. Right, right. Yeah, I started, I started going after kind of a more humorous slant on it. You know, I had quit my job on the theory that I could make a living being funny with cars even though no one had, that wasn't really a thing that existed. I have, when I look back on it, it sounds like the craziest thing I've ever done in my life. But, you know, I was 23 and it didn't really, there were stakes were low, basically. And so I gave that a shot and it, and it you know, that, that kind of grew a, an, an audience around me. Was that paying the bills? I mean, writing uh, online no, is not exactly no, a time, lucrative profession. Correct. No, at the time I was making all of my money from writing for Auto Trader. I, they were doing well. And they needed a ton of content to sort of help drive traffic, search traffic and things to their car listing. And so I was writing the stuff that most people saw, I was getting paid basically nothing for. But the stuff that I was getting paid for, you know, people weren't really seeing unless they were in market consumers, you know, trying to decide between like a RAV4 and a CRV. It was that kind of stuff. So then you end up picking up a 2004 Ferrari 360 <laughs> Modena for about $80,000, half down, half financed. Um, with your parents yeah. co-signing the loan, tell us your thinking behind that purchase. <laughs> that, that was also one of the craziest things I've ever done. I have no idea why I thought that was a good idea, but it turned out to be. My thinking was, you know, now, if you go on YouTube now, there's an enormous amount of people who have really crazy cars and do videos about them. But back when I bought that car at the beginning of 13, or no, it was the end of 13, but either way, people weren't doing that. YouTube was primarily confined to a bunch of teenagers kind of screwing around. And there were very, very, very few like exotic car owners. Like that was out of the realm of a lot of what YouTube had. 
And so my thinking was, at the time I was writing for Jalopnik, the popular you know, car blog, it became clear to me that video was maybe something I should try. And I thought, you know, it would be a really good idea to have something like this that would really, really attract people. And so my gamble was, if I buy this car, maybe I can get a lot of people you know, interested and excited and watching or reading my, my columns. Um, and so that was the that was the theory. And yes, I had never financed a car before. So my parents had to co-sign, even though I put half down and my parents had to co-sign the loan. So the first video of yours, I think that caught my attention was you basically letting 20 friends and strangers <laughs> drive the Ferrari and film it and basically capture their reactions. I suspect that video went pretty viral. I saw it on Business Insider. But in prepping for this, when I Googled that video, a ton of places talked about that. Was that your first really big video? Yeah, yeah, it was. And, and like you said, it got kind of picked up everywhere. And before that, you know, I was posting the videos on Jalopnik, and so they were doing pretty well because there's a pretty good traffic there. There was at the time. And then it kind of started that video. Yeah, that video was like, oh, my God, this, this can happen. I didn't even realize, but people seem to think that was pretty crazy. And now that's another trope on YouTube. A lot of people do that, letting their friends drive their whatever. It's not, you know, you couldn't do, go viral with that content anymore. So after about a year with the Ferrari, you say, I know what's even less reliable. And you go out and pick up, was it the Aston Martin after that? No, I think it's hard for me to remember now, which is funny because at the time it was so important to me. But I think right after the Ferrari, I had a Hummer. I had a 95 Hummer, H1 uh. Hummer. <laughs> which was just the biggest disaster automobile that has ever existed. And I had a Nissan Skyline that I had imported from Japan, which was ah, kind of the, the between those two cars. That was all the audience, right? You had like the Japanese sports car crowd and then you had the old American truck crowd. And I was like, this is, this is perfect. I can split the I can split the audience. And then somewhere in the middle, there was a Lotus Elise, which you drove cross country. Yeah, I, I actually did that before I started even doing any of this. I did that just for fun. And it was the most miserable experience I've ever had. I wish I had done it when I was writing about it and making videos because, because it really wasn't worth it to just do it. And for listeners, Doug is about 6'3", maybe even taller, yeah. and the Lotus is yeah. just tiny. The worst drive of my life. It also, I discovered in the middle of the desert, it didn't have air conditioning. I did this in July. And I didn't find out it didn't have air conditioning until day two when I was in the Mojave Desert. And I remember at one point I pulled over simply to get a bottle of water so I could pour it on myself. It was that level right. of comfort <laughs> drenched now if i recall also aston martin went back and forth across country what was that experience yeah. like yeah you know I, wanted, I i kept trying to figure out well i've done this i've done that how do i get even more reach even more people make even more of an entertaining thing with these cars i'm buying and so this aston martin at the time and probably still aston martin offered a one-year warranty with unlimited mileage on their used cars and, you know, Aston Martin and British cars, they don't have the greatest reputation for reliability. So I thought, well, I'm going to exploit the hell out of this. So I bought one. And, yeah, I mean, I drove it to 34 states, to Canada twice, D.C., and then sold it. But I put almost 20,000 miles in that car in a year. I have a picture of that car next to a bison in North Dakota, <laughs> which most Aston Martin owners don't have. And But it was pretty good, actually. It was reasonably reliable. There were some hiccups at the beginning, but after that, it was cool. But I think a lot of people were interested in seeing, hey, here's a used you know, $40,000 exotic car. How bad really is it? And so I wanted to find out, and I guess I did. <laughs> turned out not to be that bad. It turned out not to be that bad, yeah. So now you start buying other cars to do reviews. 
You had a Dodge Viper, you have the Range Rover, the Defender 90, the E63 wagon. When did you come to the realization that people really wanted to hear from an intelligent but fun car reviewer? You know, it's interesting. Initially, I was buying all those cars just to make videos with. And since I have now kind of morphed into buying cars for myself and making videos with other cars, for exactly the reason that you state, it became clear to me people really wanted to see the reviews. And obviously, I couldn't buy cars fast enough. And what became clear to me was that people wanted to see, you know, all sorts of different variety of interesting cars. And, and I could start to provide that. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I it just sort of started to take off. It was one of those things where when you do YouTube, you just make a ton of different types of content and whatever gets the most popular, you make more of that. And that's exactly how I did it. You know, I, I, I started making silly stuff with my own cars and reviewing other people's cars. Well, the reviews of the other people's cars, they got a little more popular. And so, you know, started doing more of those and more of those. And the next thing you know, you know, a billion views, <laughs> like you said. So... You're armed with an Emory University degree in economics. You get about $2,000 worth of equipment, and you launch yeah. a YouTube channel that you don't really think is the future of your career. It's just, ah, let me throw some, some videos up here. How long before it became wildly successful? You know, it's interesting. The, my initial intent was I, I, I felt then and kind of still feel that I was a better writer than a video person. And so the, the initial plan was that the videos would simply be a companion to my writing. And I remember in the summer of 15, um, so that was about a year and a half after I started videos, I, I, I was looking at my articles and my numbers on the articles were not that strong. And I happened to glance at my YouTube numbers at that time. And they were really strong. And I started to realize, oh, I'm getting more views on YouTube than in the articles. This hadn't even occurred to me because I was so laser focused on writing. And then the following summer, 16, I started doing two videos per week. And that's really when things started taking off. When I started a consistent schedule and started to really focus on YouTube, that's when things really started to blow up. And in 2016, those were reviews as opposed to one of your early reviews back when you had the Ferrari crack me up was Ferraris don't attract women. You, you would right. put, put park the Ferrari in film, people walking by, women could not possibly care less. But when you reversed it and put a woman in a Ferrari, guys flock to it like, like, uh, like the strongest magnet in the world. <laughs> and, you know, guys always flock to these cars. You know, it's so funny. Men always think, oh, I'll buy this car and women will be all over me, whatever. No. Who's actually all over you when you have a Ferrari is like teenage boys. They're, they point at you. They take pictures. You know, they're the ones that are interested. And, you know, guys generally think that. But women generally don't really care all that much. It's one of the things that I've learned. If you're buying a car to impress someone else, you're probably in the wrong, you're barking up the wrong tree. To say the very least. So let's talk about some of the reviews that you do. How do you go about selecting cars? What, what is it just a function of what's available? Or are you thinking about a checklist and saying, you know, I really haven't test drove, you know, a 488 recently and it's been upgraded. Let me, let me give that a shot. It's an interesting question. So when I first started, it was a function of what was available. And I remember people would reach out to me with like a Lamborghini and I'd be like, oh my God, a Lamborghini, you know, I got to go and film that. And I would. Now, because the channel is so big, I still do it the same way. I solicit people to get in touch with me rather than me getting in touch with people. Because I just think it's kind of entitled to call up someone or send an email to someone and say, hey, I'm, right. I'm a guy on YouTube. Can I review your expensive car? It's easier if they contact me. The channel is now so big 
that I get contacted about pretty much every car that you could imagine. And so now, yes, it's sort of like a checklist. Like I know that X, Y, and Z cars perform well, so I make videos with those cars. New cars perform tremendously well, so I work very closely with dealers and to an extent with automakers. I don't like doing it, but somewhat in order to make sure that, you know, I have new cars right when they first come out. And then still some private owners. You know, I filmed, last week I filmed, an, it hasn't gone up yet, but I filmed the 1986 Nissan Maxima. Occasionally there are cars that I just personally have an interest in. And, you know, I filmed three new models that week and I'm kind of, I just want to do something weird. And so I'll do things like that. But it's, it's, it's less and less common. The new cars is what people mostly want to see. In prepping for this, like normally I watch your videos of the cars I want to learn about or, or see. But in prepping for this, I looked at just some horrific cars that you reviewed, whether it was the, um, what was the name of the Cadillac convertible before the SLR, oh, the, the Elante? Yeah, the, no, the, the Elante. I just did the Elante. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just, just such the worst GM garbage. And you, you did a Buick Riata with that crazy yep. touchscreen. Yep, Even yep, when GM right. got was ahead of the curve with the technology, they, they found a way to mess it that's up. Right. But you also do like you know pretty new stuff you did the jeep gladiator you did you know anytime you did the most recent high output version of the range rover velar like you Mm -hmm. do pretty mainstream cars not just exotics yeah no it's gotten to the point where now i I try to film if there's any new car that has even the little bit littlest bit of buzz around it i do try to make sure i have a video on it it's just important to do and and honestly my channel is kind of a weird one because i'm i'm split between enthusiasts and in-market shoppers and so i'll review i'll put up a review of like a toyota venza and people are a highlander and people will be like why are you reviewing this piece of crap but actually that video end up getting a million views or a million and a half because people are interested in buying it well then the next day i have to put up a video of you know an old whatever porsche and then the enthusiasts come back and I lose the in-market shoppers. And it's kind of a, it's a thin line to walk. And, you know, you get criticism on YouTube no matter what you do. So let's talk about those new cars. We'll talk about the exotics later. What sort of prep work do you do when you're getting ready to go out and shoot a car for the day? Take us through your process. What do you do to get to prepare? So, you know, at the start of it, I, I write a script. And I don't script the whole video. You know, most of my video, I go through kind of the little quirks of a car. I don't script, script that because it's difficult to know what those things will be until I kind of get to the car. But I script the intro and the outro, and you can see me standing next to the car talking. That's all been scripted. The actual quirks and features of the car, I just have to kind of figure out when I'm there because it's just too difficult to figure that stuff out until you're really up close with the car. And as a result, filming a car can take six, seven hours because you spend two, three hours just kind of pouring over every button every feature, the owner's manual, all that stuff to figure out where everything is and how it all works. And so that's pretty much the process. There's not that much prep at the beginning, but when you're actually there, it's really kind of intense. And I don't think, you know, people see it on the screen and I'm kind of a goofy guy with these stupid clothes and people just think it's easy and it's a little bit harder than you might realize. How did the uh, Doug score come about? I assume you throw that in afterwards, you take notes and you do that in prep. You're not doing it on the fly while you're recording. So Doug score, quirks and features, and of course, this is a, how did these (laughs) hallmarks of your videos come about? The Doug score came about because I was realizing that people weren't watching the end of the videos. It's interesting, the way my videos work, I spend 20 minutes talking about the little quirks of the car and only about five minutes driving the car. And the reason I started doing that was because usually by the time I had gotten a car, other people who were better than me at 
reviewing cars had driven it already. And so people weren't, they didn't care what I had to say about the drive. They only cared about the quirks. And so I thought, well, I got to get people to finish watching these videos somehow. And so I put in the Doug score and, and that has really blown up the, you know, the rate to people. People, sometimes people skip stuff just to go to that and see like where I've put it against other cars. You don't have the Doug score online anywhere. Like every now and then I, I'm, I don't want to have to pull up a video search to the end. If I'm just looking for something specific in the prep for this, I was surprised that the Doug score does not seem to exist anywhere other than mentioned in the video, unless I'm, I missed it. It is on my website. I have to do better about making this clear because I get this question a lot. It is on my website. If you go to DougDeMuro.com, you can click on Doug score and the whole sheet is there. It's like a Google doc. It's actually kind of interesting. You can copy and paste it into an Excel and manipulate it. And I get people every couple weeks emailing me and saying, Hey, here's some weird, you know, cool metrics I just did with the Doug score and that sort of thing. And it's always interesting kind of to see how it's shaking down because I don't do that much analytics with it. Well, you should because that's a lot of data across a lot of cars. The interesting thing, it has really become, initially it was just kind of this interesting way to get people to watch the videos. Now it's become actually useful information because in a lot of car segments, I've reviewed all of the vehicles. And so it's like, here's something you can actually use to maybe, you know, compare stuff. And to be fair to you, normally when I look at rating systems, I'm pretty critical and, you know, waving them off. I don't disagree with you all that often. Every now and then, I think I would be a little more generous in the utility usefulness of certain exotic cars, because if you're going out and buying a $400,000 car, you're not bringing stuff home from Walmart. It's not. So so saying the car has a small trunk is like, well, but this is not their only car. They're not taking it home from the supermarket. But for the most part, I usually don't disagree with you other than a point or two this way or that. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I think it's, it took a lot of time to kind of refine it, and we've gone through several refinements, but now I think it's kind of dialed in. When, when did you come to the realization that YouTube video reviews of automobiles could be a full-time <laughs> job? <laughs> uh, I remember the day. It was, uh, I, I was driving that Aston Martin across the country, and on the way back, at the time, I lived in Philadelphia, and my, my wife had a family reunion in California. I thought, well, I have this unlimited mileage warranty. I might as well just drive this thing out there and back. <laughs> and on the way back, she flew, by the way. She was not involved. <laughs> she didn't want anything to do with it. But on the way Smart back, girl. I did meetups with my fans. And I did one in, in – I, I had never been to North Dakota, so I went like the northern route back. And I, I went to Boise and then Fargo and then Chicago and then Minneapolis and Cleveland. And the, I, I assumed at the time – that maybe a few dozen people would show up to these things. And I still, to this day, remember, it was Minneapolis. I pulled in, there were hundreds and hundreds of people. The Oscar Mayer Wienermobile showed up. <laughs> and it was unbelievable. It was just an incredible, it's of course with COVID, you can't even imagine such an event now. But it was this unbelievable thing. That all these people, all these fans were so excited and it poured that night and everyone still came out. And I called my wife on the way home from that and said, I think this may actually be a career. Like, I think I might actually be able to do something out of this and and not have to go to law school or whatever the prevailing thought was at the time. Like, this may actually work. It was only when I finally saw that display of people that night that I kind of realized this was maybe the future. Let's put these numbers into a little perspective, put a little flesh on the bones. The numbers I'm going to throw out are are pretty general. They're available online from all sorts of other sites that tell you how to be uh, a YouTuber. But typically, if you're up to one to two million page views for, per month or video views 
per month, uh, that should throw off somewhere between a quarter million and half a million per year. And are, are these sites ballpark right, or are they? Is that too broad a range? Yeah, and, and it, it is. These sites often uh, they do offer really broad ranges. But you know, it's interesting the way that YouTube works. I, I've been very surprised to learn that some channels make a ton more money because of the type of content they do, and some make a ton less because of the mm-hmm. type of content they do. It all depends on who your viewers are. And then there's a lot right. of YouTubers in addition who do a lot of paid advertisements, which I've generally avoided. I do like one or two a year. Yeah, endorsements. So, I really, really have to. I, I feel that my ethics as a journalist, it's important to very much minimize those. Occasionally I get an offer I can't refuse, and I've done maybe three, but most guys do one every video. And so you can make a lot more money that way. Um, but I've also always tried to play the long game here, and I think that by doing ads like that, you kind of people don't want to watch your content as much as every time they turn it on, there's a minute you know, ad for a shaving thing. And, but anyway, you can make pretty good money. It's gone pretty well. Quite, quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about buying and selling cars online. I, I just sold an SL this summer on eBay, coincidentally, what I paid for it 17 years ago, uh, an 86 uh, 560 SL. I got yeah. my R8 on Bring a Trailer. I found my wife's M325i convertible on Car Gurus. I don't remember how I found the M6. It might have been Car Gurus. But um, that also was in Indianapolis. I had to fly to Indianapolis and, and drive it home. But it, it's not just car guys buying cars online. It's everybody. How has the internet changed how we buy cars these days? Yeah, I mean, it's just that's just it, right? Like, no one is not using the internet pretty much to find cars. The days of leasing through Auto Trader Magazine or the back of the newspaper, that's how I bought cars when I was, you know, just, just graduating from high school and of 16 and that's what you do do you remember you'd have to try to fit like they charge you by the letter so you'd have to try to fit like pw for power windows and pl <laughs> that was how it was back then but now the internet is everything it's so much easier you get a ton of high resolution photos and there's a lot more information available for the buyer as to what they're actually buying i couldn't agree with you more i had the same experience you had on craigslist with every crazy sob story coming out could you hold the note on this car? We'll, we'll take it from you. Like, right. yeah, sure, I'm going to do that. Right. It's pretty <laughs> hilarious. So there's a ton of transactions taking place, both auctions and just regular sales. What motivated you to launch Cars and Bids? It be, you know, one of the things that I started to realize is that there's a large segment of the car enthusiast community, especially in terms of selling and buying, that is devoted to what I consider to be sort of vintage cars, which includes stuff going into the 70s, 60s, 70s, 50s. That's where it is perceived, especially in the car auction world, that all the money is. And I am very well aware, being my age, but also because I know a lot of other people who are enthusiasts, that there are, it's an underserved community of people who are interested in cars from the 80s and up. Those people are kind of ignored in the cool car space. And so it, I decided, you know, it'd be cool to have a site that just sold cars to, you know, from that era, basically, the 1980s and up. And so that's kind of, that was what we wanted to do. And I think, you know, we executed it and it's gone reasonably well so far, I hope. <laughs> well, it's certainly an interesting site. I think that you've made some improvements over many of the other auction sites. I mean, eBay is kind of a mess, but even... Yeah. Compared to something like Bring Bring a Trailer, you have a lot of really interesting, I would call them upgrades, some innovations that, that are pretty intriguing. Tell us what you think is the most distinguishing characteristic about Cars and Bids 
beyond just the fact that it's 80s to present? Yeah, I think I think there's a few. That's obviously the biggest one to me is that the specific focus, which I think attracts generally like younger people or people who are more interested in that world. But the other stuff is I think the site is really clean and easy to use, like a modern website is. Some of the competitors, eBay, like you mentioned, bring a trailer. I just don't think it's quite as easy to navigate and as and as clean and simple. And my team, the designers and the engineers who created it, the developers did an incredibly good job of making it like a modern website since we knew we would probably have a younger audience. And to me, that's probably the easiest thing, just the, or the, the, the biggest differentiator, just the simplicity and ease of navigation on the site and using it and seeing the cars and being able to kind of see everything displayed. And it's not, it's just very simple to use. And there's more stuff that's going to come out as we grow that's going to make it even easier to navigate. So it's important, I think, to make something like that. And especially when you take a look at the competitors and just geared for not really kind of the modern the modern auction buyer, I would say. So what's your role on the site presently? You were the founder or co-founder. Are, are you just marketing and strategy or, or how involved in the day-to-day are you? Well, actually, it's interesting. I'm uh, incredibly involved. So when we launched the site, we didn't realize how successful it would be. And so we just weren't ready with, with employees. I think we finally have the team in place now. It's been two months since we launched. I think we're finally ready, three months rather, I think we're finally re- ready to take on the volume and, and sort of start ramping things up. But if initially I was doing everything, I mean, it was a disaster. I still am doing most of the reserve setting of the cars that come in since that's such a giant driver of revenue, you know, making sure the cars have the right reserve prices so they'll actually sell. And then I, I add a little Doug's take to every listing that goes up, and, and I personally write each one sort of my thoughts on that particular car and that car's place in the market. And then, yes, marketing and strategy is sort of my big contribution to the site since that's where I'm best at. So what are the goals for the site? How many cars do you hope to auction each week? And, and what sort of dollar volume do you think you can move? It's a good question. I mean, we're not sure. We hope and we believe that there's a market for, I don't know, 20, 40, 50 auctions a week, something like that. Excuse me, I really want it to be the premier place for cars from this era. If you're looking for an 80s and up car, cars and bids, go there. You'll find a wide variety. We've done a good job with that, but I think I really want to kind of ramp it up and make sure that basically anything you might want is available on the site at any time. And if it isn't, well, check back next week. So I'm hoping to be able to really kind of scale it and get it to a point where it is the default for people looking for a car from this era. So two nuts and bolts questions about the operations of the site. One is the reserve price. You point out that cars without reserve have a tendency to attract a lot of interest. I was always curious why the option doesn't exist for a seller to allow the reserve number to drop mid-auction. Not necessarily that reserve has been met, but if an auction is attracting a lot of attention to just say, we're making this now a reserveless auction to see, see what that does to the bidding. It's interesting. So if a, if a seller reaches out to us during the auction and says they want to simply remove their reserve, we have honored those requests. So a few cars have actually flipped to no reserve during the auction. And, but we generally tell sellers not to reveal their reserve during the auction because right. one of the things that we've found is When someone says, oh, the reserve is X amount, it makes the bidders feel that the car is only worth X amount. 
And so they get kind of disappointed or sort of slow down their bidding or just stop bidding altogether once it gets close or hits that number because they no longer think they're getting any form of a deal. Whereas if the reserve is sort of sitting there in the background, you don't know it, people just bid what they think the car is worth, which frankly, objectively, is how a marketplace like that ought to work. People pay what they're willing to pay and whoever pays them, you know, pays the most, that's it. That's the person who wins. And so when you say, oh, the reserve's 30, bidders start thinking, well, 30, I was going to pay 33, but now that I know that the seller only thinks it's <laughs> worth 30, I'm not going to bid. And so we try to, we try to really coach the sellers, don't reveal your reserve, but if they're willing to pull the reserve completely off, then yes, we generally honor those requests. In our opinion, those auctions probably should have been no reserve from the beginning, but it's very difficult to explain to sellers, hey, you're going to get more money if you go no reserve. Cars like, we just had an Audi R8, he pulled the reserve off in the last day. And it's like, that guy should have gone no reserve from the beginning. It was a really nice car. It was clearly going to get a lot of views. But people say to me, well, what if it only gets bid to $1,000? And I'm like, well, you know, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Even for a no reserve or reserve car, it hasn't, it hasn't occurred yet. We have a lot of traffic on the site. This one's possible, but it's very, very unlikely. But people have a yeah. hard time taking that plunge. And I understand why. Yeah, I, I saw that R8. It was a 2014, with one of the first years with the dual clutch, if I remember, mm-hmm. not a manual. Yeah, I, can't, I can't remember. I think the one that the reserve was pulled off was a 17. It was a, it was a second gen R8. Oh, okay. The way I end up bidding on cars typically is I'll try and ballpark what fair value is, and then I'll bid up to 20% below it. And you'd be surprised how often you are either the winner of the auction or high bid reserve not met, and then you speak to the... Uh, Right. The seller in there, right. you know, 25000 above high price. And even if I'm on the low end, they're just not realistic. But most of the time, it looks like, so this is a good math question. What percentage of reserved bidding auctions actually go through to, through to a sale? It's something like 60, 65%, like about two thirds. And obviously, it's 100% portion. of the no reserve, right? Yeah, exactly. So our sale rate is just under 80%. The, and the, but then a good portion of those reserve auctions are deals are made after the fact. You just didn't have maybe the bidder in the room at that time to you know, get the number up there. Or maybe the seller just decides, yeah, okay, I'll go a little lower. I just want the thing gone. But that's, that's maybe once a day we do one of those or once every couple of days. Typically, they're, they're, they're hitting their numbers. And, you know, I don't know. I we're doing our, we do our best with the sellers to try to get them into a reasonable ballpark. It's amazing to me how many sellers ask for high retail as their reserve price. And I'm like, that's not how this works. You know, and then they get upset. And they're like, well, you won't give me, you know, the car is car's worth, you know, the nicest one on Autotrader is listed for 40. This guy wants a 41 reserve, right? And he says, you won't let me sell the car at the price I want. Well, there's a lot of sites you can do that, you know. <laughs> I'm not standing your way here. <laughs> It's just kind of, but a lot of sellers are realistic and they understand that, hey, a reserve is kind of the bottom I'm willing to accept. Bids could go a lot higher. And we've had a lot of very happy sellers where they put a certain reserve on and the bids went thousands over and it just worked out for them. And I try to explain yeah. that to people. But again, it's, it's hard. Every seller is different. Yeah, the, the endowment effect is everybody believes that because they own it, it's got a bigger value. <laughs> Imagine trying to sell a house where somebody lived for 30 years, brought their kids up, have all their memories there. Good luck getting those people to be rational right. in terms it's, of... Uh, it's, and it's similar to that in a lot of ways. Exactly. So probably the most similar site to yours is Bring a Trailer, which has been around for a good couple of years. They were recently sold. What, what are the long-term yeah. plans with cars and bids? You know, my partner and I discuss this a lot. Um, I don't know. 
obviously, if the right offer comes during the right time, you know, that's something we would consider. Um, but also, it's a, it's a good business. You know, we don't hold the cars. We've already done a lot of the really heavy lifting, creating the website um, and the marketplace and the terms and, and, you know, kind of figuring out a lot of the, the problems that have come up. And now we have playbooks for them. And I'm not really sure. I mean, our goal was to first see if it would work. And it did. And now the next question is like, what can we do to innovate and grow it? And I think once we've gotten to the point where we've made some cool new features come out that even enhance the experience even further, and we grow it to a point that we're really happy with, I think then we start thinking, okay, what's next? Do we expand to, you know, beyond cars? Do we expand to older cars? Do we expand to whatever? Or do we look for a buyer or whatever? I don't know. But I think that's a long way off. I think we have a long way to go before we feel comfortable that we're where we really want to be with it. Um, huh. I think there's a long, a long-term plan there. Quite fascinating. So I know you cover a lot of exotic cars, but you also cover a lot of, of new cars that have come out. Tell us some of your favorite regular cars. If, if Uncle Fred or your sister's you know, husband says, hey, I just need a regular hauler for going back and forth to work, to the train station, to Target, what sort of cars do you recommend for those people? You know what's funny? When people come to me with that kind of request, I, I try to steer them in whichever direction they're already thinking because I don't want to get blamed. So if they're thinking Honda CRV, I'm like, yes, that is it. That's the one you want. Go <laughs> pick that up. <laughs> you can fit two baby seats and a ton of, of packages in the back of that, right? I mean, right. that's and a little that's tiny for a, a family. People come to me and they're very distressed and they say, what do I get, the Highlander or the Pilot or the Explorer? And the truth is, when you're looking at a car like that that you're just going to abuse and use as a family car, doesn't really matter all that much. <laughs> They're all good. You know, there was a day not that long ago where cars, there were some really bad cars. And that's not really the case anymore. And I always tell people, look, go to the dealer, you know, play with the screen thing. That's a big component of cars now. You know, drive them, see how they feel. I, my views are, I can generally point them in a certain direction, but I also don't want to be, I don't want them to get upset. And, and, and also there's all these studies out that say that some large portion of consumers will change their entire automotive purchase if, if a different car is available in the color they want. And it's like, well, that, that kind of goes to show you that people don't, people don't really care maybe as much as we might think for, for cars like that. But there are a lot of good cars out right now. I've been really surprised with modern Ford models. The new Ford Explorer is really great. Really impressive car. Uh, it's just really amazing to me how good modern cars are in general. This, the technology that they now include, the features, the conveniences, it's really quite something, and which is one of the reasons why I kind of tell people it's hard to really go wrong. If someone is going in kind of a wrong direction, they're maybe thinking Mitsubishi. That's when you start to step in and, and give them some, some better guidance. But you rarely get that. <laughs> and full disclosure, many years ago, many, many years ago, I had the Eagle Talon TSI all-wheel drive, <laughs> which was effectively Mitsubishi product. I, I saw one on your site in red and black that, other than the interior color— identical to the one I had. And to be fair, it was a pretty decent car for 20, 30 years oh, yeah. ago. No, hey, Mitsubishi was a great automaker at one point, but things have changed. But that car, I mean, they're so hard. And that particular one that you're talking about sold for like $14,000. It's so hard to find in nice condition anymore. They're such and, cool and, cars. Those, those, those and that thing was mint. So special. Yeah, yeah, it was. And they're impossible to find mint. Because as you know, they were all modified. Either the first owner modified it or he sold it to some kid who was the second owner who modified it and then blew up the engine. And so finding one of those in nice shape is impossible now. 
So let's talk about fun weekend cars. If someone said, hey, I'm looking for something used that I could toss around, take on drives out into the country or a long weekend, but I, I, I want a stick shift and I want to have a little fun, what sort of car would you send that person looking at? Well, I generally, Porsches are popular in that segment for a reason. It kind of depends on their budget, obviously. I mean, Miata, if, if your budget is, you know, under 20, Miatas are great. They're just, the, they're so much fun and they're very underrated, even by modern, by, by, by the general public, they're very underrated. People think they're just cars for, you know, people to drive around and their hair fly. It's, they're actually fun, good sports cars. And then, you know, then you can start getting into used Caymans and, and Boxsters. I prefer convertibles. And so I always kind of tell people to go after that stuff. And you get more expensive than that, you know, yeah, used 911s, that sort of thing. But there's a reason that Porsches are, are so good. And people have always kind of idolized the idea of owning a Porsche. And so they're always kind of into that, and especially when they find out they can pick up used ones and they're pretty reliable. It makes sense. That's kind of what I generally tell people in that world. So let me push back a little bit on some of your reviews on some of the sort of fastback SUVs and crossovers. <laughs> you, you don't like X4s or X6s or the Mercedes GLEs and even the Lambo Urus, you've kind of mocked the way it looks. You know, I, I saw your review of the most recent, I think it was either the Denali or the, the Yukon, and, and I think GMC's new tagline should be, we build rectangles. And if you're not interested in like a big, boring box, well, something like, forget the, the Lambo, but something like the X4 or there's a, a smaller version of the GLE that has a little style and a little pizzazz and it's not quite a full-blown SUV, which you may not need, and it's not quite a full station wagon. It's somewhere in between. What What's your beef with those those cars? Well, don't you think there's a... There's a medium between a box like a Tahoe and a and an X4. I mean, what's wrong with an X3? How can you get an X3? They're great, oh, and they're more practical. They're prettier than they used to be. The first gen X3s were just god awful. Although you could get them with a stick. When our right, McCann yeah. S went back, I replaced it with an X4 because, you know, I have to. I have two big dogs. We go out to the beach on the weekends. Getting the older dog in and out of the back seat, it can't be too high. So that kind of eliminated the X5. The X3 was like, eh. And the GLE was a little over the top for my taste. I thought it was a bit much. This is about the same size as a station wagon, maybe a little touch bigger, but it drives. You know, the McCann drove like a sports car and, and right. ate up tires and brakes like a sports car also. The X4 seems to be like a reasonable compromise between I don't want a giant sport ute, but I need occasionally to throw a bunch of stuff in the back. And this sort of, for me anyway, just split the difference. I don't mind, truthfully, how they look as much, because I don't really like to judge cars on styling. That's kind of a, people can do what they want there. But to me, the problem is you could have an X3, you get more cargo space from a cubic perspective. The floor, the floor yeah. is the same surface area, but it, it's taller in the back, obviously. And it's cheaper. And you're not robbing yourself any rear seat room. And so to me, it's like so obvious. I would just, I wouldn't even consider an X4. I would skip right to the X3. Now, the market seems to agree with you. This surely, surely based on a number of X4s and GLC coupes and all those things I'm starting to see around. The automakers have done a good job creating demand for those cars and people are interested in them. But I just find it to be so strange. Now, I think part of it is that people don't want, like you've kind of implied, people don't want 
the same boring SUV over and over again. So it was up to the automakers to think, how can we, you know, make it more interesting? And so that's how we got X4, X6, vehicles like that. Yeah, we went to the dealer and the we got a quote on the M4.0 X4 and then a pretty nicely optioned X3. And then I went to a broker and got a quote here, here are the options I must have. Here are the options I'd like to have. Here are the color combinations I'd like. And he came back with the lease price, and this is the only car we lease, everything else we own, that was the same as the dealer quote for the X3. It made it a very easy um, yeah. decision. So when I see the car, and, and I never loved the X6. I thought the X6 was a goofy compromise. The new X6 is kind of nice also. You know, the original X6 was quite a stretch. The newer one is a lot more of a rational-looking car. I think they kind of dialed it back a little bit. I've always said that the new X6 looks like the old X6 asking permission. It's, it's like it's, it's a little bit, a little bit not. It's not quite as, as aggressive and as, as eager as the old one, but maybe that's a good thing. But also the X6 when it first came out, it was a really big departure, right? It was the first of those coupe SUVs, and so it was a everybody's like, whoa, what are they thinking? Well, now it's become a little more accepted, and so I think there's also a component of in our minds, it has become a more reasonable car. So let's talk about some of the uh, crazier cars you've reviewed and um, enjoyed. La Ferrari, Bugatti Veyron, yeah. McLaren Senna, yeah. Koenigs Koenigsegg Ag Agera. What, and that's just like the tip of the uh, uh, iceberg. <laughs> Tell us some of the most memorable million-dollar cars you got to drive. In the Bugatti Chiron, which is Bugatti's current, you know, expensive sports car I, that was probably the most memorable i mean that's that thing's three million plus it's also just the coolest thing the koenigseggs are cool but i still can't shake the feeling that it's just an ultimate small volume manufacturer that just sort of builds a few of these you know bugatti is like a legit company that's pumping these things out not that not pumping them out but they've built a few hundred and and it's just so amazing what the engineering what it was capable of that it could go so fast and have so much power and, and also be luxurious i mean you drive that car it feels like you're sitting in a bentley and then you accelerate, and it feels like you're driving a race car. I mean, it's really impressive that they were able to make all of that happen. And so that's just a really special car. And driving that around, I filmed that video in Toronto. And driving that around, people just freak out. They get so excited. They say, a Bugatti, you know. And that car, when I was a kid, the Veyron, and then now the Chiron was like the car. It was the car you wanted. I just think emotionally that's a really cool car. But, I mean, they're all insane. Pagani, Pagani makes them, like, cars are essentially high-quality jewelry. Every little button and feature and switch is perfectly chiseled and aluminum and the incredible weight they think about every even when you put on the hazard lights how does that feel and blah 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 it's incredible craftsmanship and they're all incredible it's, the really amazing thing is just the sheer number of million dollar cars that exist which is now quite a few what is going on with the run of new ferraris that we've seen coming out are, are they in in danger of becoming a high volume retailer how many ferraris are they going to continue to crank out going forward you know it's an interesting question i mean that that is a big issue that they're going to contend with over the next few decades you know the enzo era he died in about 1990 and the cars from that era were ever uniformly considered to be special the company has sort of ramped up ever since then and in the last two years especially they've really ramped up and they're now going to be creating an SUV, which is to a lot of their consumers, it's sort of sacrilege. And I know a lot of there's a lot of discontent among Ferrari people about the new, you know, the new guard of Ferrari people 
um, and the cars are just a lot more accessible. It used to be that you had to know what you were doing in order to drive one, and that's not the case anymore. They have automatic transmissions. They're very easy to, as long as you have the money, you can, you can buy one and drive it. So, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Ferrari long term. Does the brand start to become devalued due to their production? Well, it seemed to work for Porsche. Didn't the Cayenne kind of save the company? But you can't just live on 911s forever, can you? Yeah, there was a time in the 90s where Porsche was like, I don't want to say hours away from bankruptcy, but certainly months. And they really had to kind of band together and, yeah, create a diversify the lineup. You couldn't just exist on a couple of sports cars anymore. And so, yeah, Cayenne, you know, they did some special projects for Mercedes-Benz and for Audi. They built some of their cars to make some money. And then, you know, they, they said, we need, a, we need a smaller sports car, which became the Boxster. That helped. We needed an SUV. And, and so there's some benefit there. But Porsche was never quite the brand that Ferrari was. And so Ferrari is a little bit more specialness. A lot of the reason people pay those kind of prices is because they don't expect to see one every day. Well, we'll see if that continues. We're talking about a number of multi-million dollar cars. And if money was no object, <laughs> what would you uh, put in your garage next to the uh, Ford GT? <laughs> If money was no object, I would get a Ferrari F40, which I think is a great car. But my all-time favorite vehicle is the Porsche Carrera GT, which is the car that Paul Walker you know, was riding in when he died. And that is, I think, the most special car ever made, the best car ever made, the greatest sports car of all time. And I would love to have one of those. But at the current going rate of seven hundred to 800000 I think it'll be a while before that happens. Affordable, reasonable. And I, and I have to tell you, as somebody... As someone who's not a giant 911 fan, I, I, I find them to look a little froggy. The Carrera GT is a beautiful car. Yeah, very special car. So let's go through a few other beautiful cars. You basically talked me out of the Aston Martin Rapide, which have become <laughs> incredibly reasonable. Every now and then I'll throw yes. a tweet up today in depreciation and show a $200,000 car being sold for $45,000 used. I can't get past that Garmin nav yeah. system. It, it just kills the whole car for me. Yeah, I know. I know. It was, you know, Aston Martin has always played the role of the small volume brother to the real automakers who are trying to sell, you know, high, high expensive cars. They have this amazing brand name and this amazing, beautiful car. It's been very difficult for them to create technology that rivals Mercedes-Benz or Bentley or, or for even Ferrari with a big parent company. And so they always end up with stuff like that. And there's always these Achilles heels. Uh, even when Aston Martin started making reliable cars, the technology was still total trash. And that's a tough one. Yeah, you get in that car and you see that, and it's like, well, that looks like the kind of thing my grandma stuck on her dashboard, you know, so she wouldn't get lost, you know, in, in 2004 is that, that level. So let's talk a little bit about some of the older trucks we, we just saw the refresh of the Jeep Wrangler next, I think it's June 2021. The new Bronco will come out, which I think they did yep. a spectacular job on. Yep. Uh, I've yep. always been a fan of the Toyota FJ40s, which yep. I'd, I'd love to replace the Rubicon with. But, but you went full insanity and got a Defender 90, a truck that I've always liked but been horrified to own. <laughs> what has your experience with the Defender been like? You know, it's interesting. The Defender is a very special car. And everywhere I go, people come up to me and, and talk to me about it. And they always tell me they want one. And I always tell them, you don't actually want one. What you want <laughs> is a Range Rover feeling car that looks like this. But in reality, <laughs> this thing drives like a piece of crap, which is what it is. I always tell people it's the, world's, it's the worst like 
comfort and quality per dollar. Because Defenders, North American spec Defenders, they only made about 7,000 of them. And the cost of them is now anywhere between maybe fifty and $80,000. And it's an enormous amount of money to pay for what is ultimately one of the great bad cars. I mean, it really is. Even the hardtop ones, you're getting wet when you're driving in the rain. You know? <laughs> it's a disaster. And uh, I explain that to people. But I am an enthusiast of this car. I love this car. I grew up wanting one. And so it makes sense for someone who's really into it. But anybody who's even slightly less than really into it probably shouldn't get one because they're going to get tired of it quickly. And this is what ultimately happens with these Defenders. Rich guys buy them. They think they're cool. They've always wanted one. And then after about a year, they're like, boy, this is a piece of crap. And they just move it on. And then, you know, the next rich guy comes in and he brings it to his house in Vermont and, and drives it for a summer. And then, okay, it's a piece of crap. And then he sells it. And then it's in the Outer Banks for a couple of years. And then that guy tires of it. It's very difficult to actually want to, want to use and enjoy that car unless you're really into it. Your spare tire cover says Luke's Diner on it. And yeah, right. the first time I notice that, I say, wait, Gilmore Girls? What, what's that about? And then I go to your Twitter description, and you yeah. literally have fan of the Gilmore Girls in your Twitter description. You have right. to explain what on earth is that doing there. I love Gilmore Girls. I think it is one of the, I, I love anything with community, any television show, book, movie, anything with community, like a good, and they lived in this cute little town that was just the best little community. And I think it's like the greatest thing in the world. So every three or four years, I watch the entire series. You know, again, I start at the first episode and watch all the way through. Now, one interesting Gilmore Girls anecdote, I have tracked down the original Jeep Wrangler that was used in that television show. Hilarious. And... It was purchased after the show ended at a charity auction, and that person still owns it. And they own it in a small town in Connecticut, which is where the show takes place. And I have done everything I can to reach out to this person and try to buy it from them. I've sent letters, and I've sent contacted on Facebook, and it doesn't get seen. And so I'm terrified that I won't end up with this car. But I really, really want it. I think it's the great of the ultimate Gilmore Girls uh, fan accessory. And I think I'd be perfect, perfect to own it. So when this show first came out, I never saw it. I never heard of it. I never thought of it. And during lockdown, when it first began, my wife and I just randomly, because her sister loved the show, started watching it. And not only did we get into it, we watched one or two a night for the whole first, there's, there's like eight <laughs> seasons, for the first three, four months of lockdown. And I was really sad when it to see it end because it was just perfect escapism from the troubles of the world. It's a small town. Everybody is right. humorous. It, it has flavors of other, you know, the, the dialogue is kind of like West Wing. I don't know if you're old enough to remember Northern Exposure, which is another quirky town only in Alaska. Right. But it, it was perfect lockdown escapism. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good way to put it. I hadn't thought about that, but that is exactly what it is. People who are just, yeah, they're friendly, they, they like each other, they care about each other. It's a, it is a good uh, break from the current situation. So as long as we're talking trucks and, and TV, uh, what are your thoughts on the FJ40 from the 70s or 80s? I, I, I've always thought that was a solid, reliable choice for terrorists and, and drug lords. <laughs> yeah, it was for a long time. Those are great. You know, all these, all these older SUVs have become so sought after now really 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 become a big big thing everybody disposed of these vehicles during the 70s and 80s because they didn't they were just trucks you used them you drove them on the beach you drove them up the mountains you, right. you went hunting in them well now there's the ones that are left 
are so desirable. And the FJ40 has become, you know, one of the really cool ones, it being the original Land Cruiser. Those people get to sneer at people with newer ones and say, oh, I don't need all that comfort. Right. <laughs> it's a special, it's, it's very, very exciting. All of these things are there. It's just amazing to me what the old SUV market has become in the last 10 years. I have a buddy who imports Defenders from Spain because he's got family there. And I, yeah. I mentioned my uh, interest in FJs. And it turned out that he had a family member in Colombia. And so we looked online at a bunch of places. We had him, his, the local, go over to the refurb shop in, in Colombia, look at a bunch of cars, talk to the owner. They turned out to have mutual acquaintances. And we picked two cars to refurb in South America and bring to New York. He wanted a red one. I wanted the light blue one. The red one was refurbed and shipped. And when they were about to start on the light blue one, pandemic hit. So I was unable to bring my car in. But his car is here and it drives and, and he loves it. He got the soft top. He could not possibly be more thrilled with it. And, yeah, and it's so about cool. and it's so much fun to drive around. It's not fast, but it's so much fun. It's actually nicer driving than my 2013 Jeep Rubicon, which incidentally <laughs> is a salvage title, which I wanted to ask you about. So I bought a flood car and all in replacing all the electricals, replacing the fuse, the three fuse box, the three wiring harnesses, pretty much anything that plugged in. All in, I bought a year-old car for 20 grand when they were going for 35, and I've put 30,000 miles on it. I ended up replacing the radio, and parking brake kind of rusted. I replaced that. But I know you hang with a lot of people that are big fans of salvage titles, including some exotic salvage titles. What sort of advice do you give to people who want to buy one of the crazier cars that might have been smashed up or stolen and driven off the road. What do you say to people who say, well, hey, I could I, afford a Lambo? I would generally tell people that that's fine if you know what you're doing. You're in the cars, you kind of have an idea of what to expect. I mean, I wouldn't just tell it to someone who's looking for a bargain Lambo to go and get one with a salvage or a rebuilt title. Because at the end of the day, a lot of stuff could crop up. You really want to do a good job of figuring out before you buy the car what's, what's, what's going on with it, what works, what doesn't, what to look for especially a car that's been in a flood because there's, you know, rust components, whether it's a saltwater flood, that sort of thing. You definitely don't want to do it unless you have a pretty good idea of what you're doing. People see some of these prices and they get all excited, and then they don't really realize how bad it could be if you don't take the right precautions. That's, that's, that's generally what I would probably say to people. And also, it can be more difficult to get financed and insured on some of these cars, especially super high-value stuff, if it has, you know, prior flood, prior you know, serious accident, that sort of thing. So I know I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let's jump to our speed round. These are the questions we ask all of our guests. And let's start with, what are you watching these days? What are you streaming? Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime shows. You know, it's interesting. For years, I never really watched TV. And so I'm trying to catch up on all the important shows. So right now, I'm watching Desperate Housewives, which is like ages old. But I, just, you make, I, I, only, I only recently saw The Sopranos. I'm just I'm trying to, like, catch up. That's, that's my goal. Really, I enjoy mostly just my uh, the idea of an, an entertaining night for me is 
sitting in front of the computer on Wikipedia and reading about various, learning about various things. And that's how I spend most of my time. That's pretty hilarious. <laughs> Who, uh, Wikipedia for fun and, and entertainment? The other night I spent about three hours on the Titanic Wikipedia and all of its associated Wikipedia articles. That's my uh, version of a fun evening, believe it or not. So one of the things I've been doing for the past, I don't know how many years, is just on the blog throwing up a car. Could be new, could be old. And I always just use it as an excuse to do some research into that car. And I have to tell you, I am shocked at the quality and depth of the information available on Wikipedia. And before yeah. people say, oh, all that stuff is wrong, you could go to the original source. Who were your early mentors? Who helped influence your career, whether it was as a journalist or as a YouTuber? Um, you know, I think the biggest early influence was, you know, Top Gear, which is true for almost all of us, um, you know, who are on YouTube right now, watching those guys on that show, it was so special and so exciting. And I think we all kind of wanted to do that ourselves. And I think that was like the really, really my foundational, like, this is the coolest thing. That was definitely the biggest influence. And they were pretty hilarious. I know you got to meet Brian May. What was that like? James May, yeah. It was amazing. It was like, you know, I mean, it was like meeting your heroes. And he was great. He was super nice. He was a really, really good guy. We ended up chatting for a long time and about cars and everything. And I mean, how, you know, for a guy who grew up with that show and whose kind of life has been, okay, I'm going to do fun stuff with cars too. That was one of the coolest things I could even imagine. And Jay Leno also, you got to play with Jay Leno's McLaren F1, right? Yeah, that was really something. That was quite a car, and Jay is not afraid of driving the hell out of it, <laughs> which is pretty crazy when you think about it. Yeah, what, what is that up to? That's $8 oh. million or $10 million, some crazy number? I think over that. I think the last one that sold was like 12 But, you know, Jay's is special because it's Jay's, and he's, it's basically a one-owner car, and, you know, I think his would be even more money than that. It's a pretty crazy thing to think about. So what are you reading these days? Tell us some of your favorite books. You've written two of them. What, what do you like to do to keep your brain occupied? You know, it's interesting. I, I mentioned the Wikipedia article thing earlier. I also love reading long-form articles. The website longform.org has all these sure. like long-form journalism. It's like my favorite thing in the world. And I read pretty much every single long-form on there. I'm obsessed with that. In terms of books, I don't read that many books. I'm usually into these longer articles where I can learn more in like an hour. But um, I just finished reading a book called Evicted uh, by Matthew Desmond. I'm really into housing and housing policy and affordable housing and building stuff and hate all these anti-building and anti-not-in-my-neighborhood kind of people. And so I'm, I'm into that sort of thing. My one political stance. Um, but other than that, I'm not really that. It's mostly long-form journalism. Quite interesting. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career involving automobiles, whether it was journalism or YouTube or, or anything like that? You know, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, people are asking me, oh, you know, what can I do? How can I get started? What should I do? And, and it's, I got lucky because I started in 13 and it was a lot easier then. And I don't know what I would do now, but I know it would be a lot more difficult. But the advice that I always give to people generally is, you know, hey, don't stop. You have to kind of persevere because early on it's difficult and it may seem like it's going to be a disaster. But if you can outlast people, that may help. And, you know, people are always asking, well, how can I get access to cars, that sort of thing? Just film what you have. Try to find some interesting niche angle on what you have 
and make that, you know, your thing, make it fun. And maybe you'll start to attract an audience and go there. And, and the other really important piece of advice I always try to give to everybody is make the kind of content that your audience wants, not what you want. That's the real goal. People always get caught up in, oh, I want to drive this cool car. Oh, I want to check out this cool car. Well, does your audience want you to do that? And if not, maybe that experience shouldn't be what you do. And maybe you should instead, you know, go at it a different angle or something like that. And our last uh, speed round question, what do you know about the world of videos and automobiles and pretty much everything that you wish you knew a dozen years or so ago when you were first getting started out? In terms of video production, I guess I wish I knew just that, you, that it's doable, that it's, not, that it's not something that you need an enormous amount of effort and equipment and professionals for, that, you know, you can do it. As, as people say, if I could do it, anyone can. Well, that's really true of me. I had no clue what I was doing initially, but I made it work. And that's kind of the biggest piece of advice I would have, is that it's, you don't need a zillion-dollar budget to go into this world. You just need to make good content. And that's the real, the real key, I think. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Doug DeMuro, who is the co-founder of Cars and Bids and the host of the Doug DeMuro channel on YouTube. Doug, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. If you enjoy this conversation, well, check out all of our previous 340 such prior discussions we've had. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever finer podcasts are found. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column. You can find that on bloomberg.com opinion. Be sure to give us a review on Apple iTunes. Sign up for our daily reads at Ritholtz.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put this conversation together each week. Reggie Bazil is our audio engineer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Boyle is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.